I have picked a, a sutta, which is a bit peculiar, but you will see why, I'm sure, after a while. It's called the precipice, and the, which is the overall title for the whole collection, precipice, and then this one is called reasoning. On a certain occasion, the Buddha was staying near Rajagaha, in the bramble grove at the squirrel feeding ground. Now, this was the um, um, place where he often went to give talks. On that occasion, the Buddha addressed the monk, saying, Once upon a time, a certain man left Rajagaha with this intention, I will speculate about the world. And he came to Sumagava Lotus Pond. I don't know, you better go. <laughs> now, on reaching that lotus pond, this man sat down on the bank of the lotus pond and fell to speculating about the world. Now, the footnote says the world may be, he was speculating who made the moon, sorry, the moon and the sun, who made the earth, the ocean beings, people, mountains, and uh, how does it all function and work? So he was speculating about the world. Now, very soon that man saw an army with its four divisions of elephants and horses, chariots and infantry, entering a lotus stalk. Stalk of the lotus flower. On seeing it, he thought, I must be mad. I must be out of my mind. For I have seen what does not exist in the world. Well, that man went into the town and told a great crowd of folks. Listen, he said, I must be mad. I must be out of my mind. For I have seen what does not exist in the world. How is that, good fellow, they said. How are you mad? How are you out of your mind? What have you seen that's not in the world? Why, it's like this, he said. I left Rajagaha with this intention. I will speculate about the world. And I came to the Sumagava Lotus Pond. And when I got there, I sat down on the bank of the pond and fell to speculating about the world. And then I saw an army with its four divisions entering a lotus stalk. That is how I must be mad, must be out of my mind. For I saw what does not exist in the world. Indeed, good fellow, you are mad, you are out of your mind. What you saw does not exist in the world. Now, monk, what that man saw was real, not unreal. Once upon a time, the hosts of the devas and the asuras, asuras are like titans, it's another level of consciousness, were arrayed for battle, and in that battle, the devas won the day and the Asuras were defeated. And the Asuras, defeated and panic-stricken, entered Asura town by way of a lotus stalk in terror of the Devas. Wherefore, monks, do not reason about the world. Do not think like this. Eternal is the world or not eternal is the world. 
Finite is the world or infinite is the world. Life is the same as body or life and body are different. The Tathagata, Mr. Buddha, exists after death or that Tathagata exists not. Or he both exists and does not exist. Or he neither exists nor not exists. Why do I say this? Because this kind of speculation is not concerned with profit. It is not the rudiments of the spiritual life because it does not conduce to dispassion, to cessation, to tranquility, to, to insight, to perfect wisdom, because it does not lead to nibbana. When you want to reason, then reason like this. This is dukkha. This is the arising of dukkha. This is the ceasing of dukkha. This is a practice that leads to the ceasing of dukkha. Why do I say so? And then it is a repeated. Because such reasonings are concerned with profit, with profitable state. Wherefore, one must make an effort to realize the four noble truths. Now, the, the reason I read this out, it's, uh, it's quite uh, funny in a way, but mainly... Mainly... It tells us something which is quite important. It tells us that we are using our mind very often for things which are totally un unnecessary. We use the mind to figure out, is this correct, is that correct, is he doing it right, is she doing it right, what did the Buddha mean, what did he not mean. And the Buddha keeps always saying, just use the Four Noble Truths. And that leads to Nibbana. And when you use the Four Noble Truths, the first thing what you know is that there is Dukkha. And if we don't see it, the Dukkha, well, then, of course, we can't even start on the Four Noble Truths. And the second one is that Dukkha has only one cause, and that's craving. third one is Nibbana, cessation of Dukkha. Now, that, to step from the first two to the third one, we need the fourth one, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. And the Noble Eightfold Path is Sila Samadhi and Panya, which means the moral conduct, the concentration, and the insight. So whenever people had asked him things which were sort of a little bit out of the ordinary, he always pushed them back to the Four Noble Truths. And this is what, um, the reason I read it out is because obviously we're not very different. I mean, we probably don't see an army with four divisions entering a lotus stalk, but we do have ideas which are not conducive to Nibbana. And the only reason the Buddha taught, there was only one reason for him to teach, and that was in order to help people to reach that state, which is the cessation of all dukkha, which is the end of all um, dependencies. But that state can only be reached if we have enough insight to see that there is nobody there that's going to reach it. There is the deed but no doer. There is suffering but no sufferer. There's a path but no one to enter. There's Nibbana but no one to reach it. doesn't mean Nibbana doesn't exist. It just means that there is never a person that can reach Nibbana. There's only a consciousness which is impersonal, which doesn't have any particular person to it. So the consciousness, the mind state, it can reach that, but only when one has given up 
the personal ownership of all that, of all that which we think we are. So this is why I thought it might be nice to read that. On a certain occasion, the Buddha was staying near Vajagaha on the hill of Vulture's Peak. It's a, I have been on that hill. It's a very uh, um, interesting place. It's completely bare. I mean, you could never say it's beautiful or anything. There's nothing growing up there. But it has an um, atmosphere which is very conducive to meditation out in the open and the Buddha's discourses were often given there so one might think I can't guarantee that but one might think that that energy has remained there and then the Buddha addressed the monk saying monks let us go to the splendid spur what is that a great mountain like perforated rock the commentary says for the noonday rest. So be it, replied the monk. So the monk, so the Buddha with a number of monks came to the splendid spur. And now a certain monk saw the great precipice and on seeing it said to the Buddha, Lord, this is indeed a great precipice. This is indeed a fearsome precipice. Is there anywhere a precipice greater and more frightful? Yes, the Buddha said. There is indeed a precipice greater and more frightful. And what is that? Whatsoever monks or Brahmins do not understand as it really is the meaning of this is Dukkha. This is the, the uh, ceasing of Dukkha. This is the practice that leads to the ceasing of Dukkha. They delight in activities that lead to rebirth, to old age, to death, to sorrow, grief and lamentation and despair. And thus, taking the light, they compose a compound of activities. They compose a compound of activities that conduce to rebirth, to old age, to death, to sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. And thus composing such activities, they fall down the precipice of rebirth, old age, and death. They fall down the precipice of lamentation and despair. They are not released from rebirth, old age and death, lamentation and despair, and not released from dukkha, I declare. So what the Buddha is doing is making a wordplay. Uh, they came to this splendid mountain there, and the monk says, ooh, this is a great uh, precipice here. It has nothing greater. And the Buddha says, no, it's much worse to, to um, have the uh, um, rebirth, which leads then to decay and death, and old age, decay, death, and then the rebirth and which brings sorrow and grief with it so that's a much more dangerous place and those who do understand as it really is namely, namely the meaning of dukkha they do not delight in activities that conduce to rebirth now the activities that conduce to rebirth we must uh, have a look and see what the Buddha was, would be talking about well obviously the non-practice of the constant investigation into everything that we do whether it is actually impermanent dukkha and has any substance in it now if we investigate ourselves then with all the activities that we do we will not fall into the error of spending our time just 
to have um, distractions, but we will spend our time fruitfully. Now, our time in this body is very limited, and so to spend the time in the best possible way is one of the um, great, of great importance. Because we don't, we don't know how long we're going to be here. We might be here only a very short time. Nobody has a guarantee that they're going to be 80 or even 60 or anything like that. So the activities which we do, which means that we pick out what we wish, should lead us to Nirvana by understanding that there isn't a single one that doesn't contain impermanence, dukkha, and corelessness. But that means investigation. So we have to actually be alert and aware constantly so that we don't fall into the error using our time wrongly. Not composing a compound of activities that lead to, that so lead, they do not fall down the precipice of rebirth, old age, death, lamentation, and despair. They are utterly released from rebirth. They are released from all dukkha. Therefore, an effort must be made to realize this is dukkha. This is the practice that leads to the ceasing of all dukkha. The, um, the first step that leads one from being a worldling to being a noble one is called stream entry. And there's a very, it's very interesting to read what the Buddha has to say about stream entry because we usually talk about the stream entry as seeing the, the seeing Nibbana, seeing that mm, experiencing non-self for the first time once and then having a quite a um, strong result from that as an inner feeling. But the Buddha says there is also another way of attaining stream entry, which is very interesting. And I had it all marked out, and now I can't find it, but I'm sure I'll get it in a minute. I know exactly what it was all about. Yeah, this is it. Okay. On a certain occasion, the Buddha was staying near Benares at Isipatana in the Deer Park. The, that is also the place where he gave the very first discourse. Damadina, a lay disciple, came with 500 lay disciples to see the Buddha, and on coming to him, saluted him and sat down on one side. As they thus said, Damadina, the lay disciple, said to the Buddha, Let the Buddha give us a Dhamma talk, so that it may be for our profit and welfare for a long time. And then the Buddha said, Damadina, you must train yourself. As to those discourses uttered by the Buddha, deep in meaning, transcendental, and concerned with the void. The void is an unusual translation, Sunya, Nibbana. Concerned with Nibbana. From time to time, we will spend our days learning those discourses. That is how you must train yourself, Damadina. It's not an easy thing for us, Lord, living as we do in crowded houses, encumbered with children, enjoying the use of Benares sandalwood, decking ourselves with garlands and 
perfume, handling gold and silver, in other words, being merchants. It's no easy thing for us from time to time to spend our days learning those discourses uttered by the Tathagata. So what, these, what Gamadina is saying, and also voicing the thoughts of the um, other 500 lay disciples or many lay disciples that came with them, is that as lay people they find it difficult to spend their time because the time is taken up, taken up with business and uh, family to spend time to learn the discourses. Let the Lord teach us some other teaching to us who stand firm in the five precepts. In other words, he says, it's too difficult for us. Please teach us something else. See, transcendental meaning taking us to Nibbana is too difficult. We want something else. So the Buddha says, then Dhammadina, train yourself in this way. We shall be blessed with unwavering loyalty to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. We shall be blessed with the virtues, dear to the noble ones, virtues unbroken, which conduce to concentration of mind. That is how you must train yourself. And then Dhammadina says, Lord, as to those four paths of streamlining taught by the exalted one, those traditions are seen to exist in us already. In other words, there are four uh, conditions for stream entry. And these four conditions, and this is not the only time that he mentions it, are complete and unwavering loyalty and faith to Buddha Dhamma Sangha. To the Buddha, in that case it was of course the teacher, but in our case it's the enlightenment which is um, embedded, um, embodied in the Buddha. The uh, Dhamma, the teaching, and the Sangha, those who have propagated the teaching and to keep the five precepts. So now Dhammadina says, we live according to that. We have unwavering faith and loyalty and we do keep the five precepts. We possess unwavering loyalty to the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We possess the virtues dear to the the noble ones, virtues unbroken, whole, unspotted, untarnished, giving freedom, praised by the wise untainted, which conduce to concentration of mind. Well for you, Dhammadina, well gotten by you, Dhammadina, you have declared the fruits of stream winning. So those four conditions are conditions for stream entry, and they do not even require the fact that one sees Nibbana for oneself. But in the commentary, this is called a small stream entrance a chula satapana. And the one who has seen Nibbana is called the, um, very often, the, uh, the true stream enter. So, this is actually for lay people. Because this Dhammadina says, you know, as lay people, we haven't got the time for all this, what you're teaching there. So, he teaches them for lay people to have this. But this loyalty and faith, he says, has to be unbroken which means, or unwavering, sorry, it's unwavering, which means that there is a complete um, giving of oneself to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, where there isn't the slightest doubt. So in other words, the, the skeptical doubt is lost. That fetter is gone. There's no skeptical doubt what 
or ever. And Buddha Dhamma Sangha are considered to be the uh, highest truth in that person's mind. Now, obviously, this is uh, in reply to the, um, the request by Dhammadina to be taught something which is not as difficult as the transcendental uh, understanding that the Buddha mentioned first. And here's another, the, the next one is about visiting the sick. Now that also is um, considered to be helpful to people who have this unwavering faith. On a certain occasion, the Buddha was staying among the Sakyans at Kapilavatu in Banyan Park. Now the Buddha himself was a Sakyan and Kapilavatu was his birthplace. So he went back to his birthplace. Now on that occasion a number of monks were busy making robes for the Buddha. For they said, when the rains are over, the Buddha will go forth on his rounds. Now Mahanama the Sakyan heard that, heard it said, a number of monks are busy making robes. And he went to the exalted one, saluted him and sat down. So seated Mahanama the Sakyan said this to the exalted one. I heard it said that a number of monks are busy making robes with the idea that when the rains are over, the Buddha will set forth on his round. Now, Lord, we have never heard from the Buddha's own lips how a discreet lay disciple who is sick, afflicted, suffering from a sore disease should be admonished by another discreet lay disciple. I don't know what the word discreet is supposed to mean. What come here? an understanding one, an understanding lay disciple. An understanding lay disciple who is sick should be admonished by another lay disciple with the four comfortable assurances. Thus, take comfort in your unwavering loyalty to the Buddha, saying, He is the exalted one, Arahant, fully enlightened, teacher of devas and men. Take comfort in your unwavering loyalty to the Dhamma, saying, well proclaimed is the Dhamma. Take comfort in your unwavering loyalty to the Sangha. Take comfort in your possession of the virtues dear to noble ones, virtues unbroken, which conduce to concentration of mind. An understanding lay disciple Mahanama who is sick should be admonished with these four comfortable assurances. If one keeps the precepts well, one should remember that one does and feel happy about it. In other words, one should be um, say, uh, remembering this. It's not only when one is sick, at any time. When the mind, and our mind is often sick, when the mind goes downhill towards something which is um, not profitable, not wholesome, when the mind becomes uh, unhappy or depressed or disliking, anything like that. At that time, it is uh, very helpful to remember whether that one has kept the precepts, or it is very helpful to remember any of the good things one has done. One should at all times, not just in physical sickness, at all times be able to arouse a kind of um, 
feeling of goodness in oneself because one is practicing. And this is what this is all about. In physical sickness, that is also very helpful. To remember that one is actually trying to practice the best there is. Now, whether one calls it Buddha Dhamma Sangha, as one does, of course, when it concerns the Buddha's teaching, or just the best spiritual practices that are available, any of it will raise the mind to a level where there is a comfortable feeling. The Buddha has always said, we can only meditate when we are comfortable in body and mind. We can only reach any kind of deep insight when there is comfort in body and mind. Now, if the body is not very, very comfortable, we can help that by using mind, comfort of mind. That's what this is about, which is a very um, basic and important change of mind which we can do ourselves. Then supposing the sick person longs for his parents, he should be spoken to thus. If he says, I long for my parents, the other one should reply, but you know that they are also subject to death. Whether you will feel, you, whether you feel longing for your parents or not, there, therefore it's just as well for you to abandon that longing you have for your parents, because they too cannot help you, well, because they too are impermanent. If he should say that I have now abandoned the longing for my parents, and then say, but I have longing for my children, then you would, must also tell him that they too are impermanent and you should abandon that longing because a longing is a desire. Any longing is a desire. What does desire do? It brings dukkha because we don't feel at ease because we don't have what we want. So obviously the sick person may think that if these people were there, which they aren't, that would be helpful to, to him. But if we have this kind of wanting, longing, wanting, then definitely the mind is not on a level of comfort. It's very uncomfortable. And as we have this discomfort in the mind, then the body becomes more and more uncomfortable. Then he might say that there is still longing for five human pleasures of sense, or which means through the five sense doors. Huh? Then, when you are, if you are a good friend, you should tell him the heavenly delights are more excellent than the five human delights. It was much better to remove those thoughts from them and fix them on the heavenly delights. When the, the sick person says, I have done so, then one should raise the consciousness of that sick person to make it uh, um, to make him aware of the fact that the higher consciousness is much more comfortable than the lower consciousness and then if he says now I have fixed my consciousness on wanting to come to the Brahma world then he should be told even the Brahma world is impermanent, it's the highest consciousness, and not lasting, and 
it would be best if you raise your mind above that and fix it on cessation from existence. And when the sick person has done so, then, Mahanama, I declare, there is no difference between the lay disciple and the monk whose heart is freed from the taints. There is no difference between the release of the one and the release of the other. So what the Buddha is saying here, that there is no difference between lay people and monks and nuns if the lay person practices. And the way to practice is first, the sick person is here taken as an example, the way of practice is first shown to show him that the people that one is attached to are also impermanent and therefore they cannot bring the comfort, the real comfort that one wants. And after that, after one has given wanting those people up, then giving up the idea that one gets comfort through the five senses, because that too is not going to give any lasting comfort. Then making uh, understood to the person that one can raise one's consciousness from the level of being in a worldly consciousness through the um, meditative path or through thinking of, even just thinking of, it's also mentioned, just thinking of the higher realms, the higher stages of consciousness, which the Buddha gives names to, the Deva realms, and then the highest realms, the Brahma realms, and then understanding that that too is impermanent, then putting one's mind on the understanding that only the cessation of personal existence will bring the complete uh, comfort and the complete release from Dukkha. And then having done this step by step, there's no difference between a lay disciple and a, dis- uh, a monk or a nun. Monks or nuns in those days were considered to be the real practitioners, but the Buddha says that's not so. They, it's just the practice which matters and not whether what, what, what um, one has uh, agreed to do. So any questions of any, on, on any of that before I read something else? Any question on any of this? Yes, this is a male lay disciple. Yes. The, the Dhammadina who is a nun uh, has the same name, but there's a dash over the last A. That's how it's female. And when it's male, there's no death over the A. Now, we have already had... Is there anything else? Any other question? Yes. Yes. Clearly, the immovable faith, which brings with it a complete, um, wholehearted devotion and uh, giving oneself to Buddha Dhamma Sangha, which brings with it an impossibility to break the five precepts, uh, no skeptical doubt, 
understanding that rites and rituals are not what it's all about. But it does not bring with it yet the right view of self in any personal experience. It brings with it the right view of self because one believes what the Buddha says. But the personal experience is not there. So that's why it's a small screen enter. Hmm? Sure. Sure. Same, same thing. You were talking I'm sorry to say that I find it difficult to relate to that. I've never had that. <laughs> I mean, even 30 years ago, or however long it is that I ever that I never heard from about the Buddha, I never can remember anything like that. I can certainly remember disliking this, that, or the other, but not not the general thing. But still, I can answer you. Uh, this uh, everything is everything seems to be not nice. Is that what it is? Right. Yeah. Not, not all the time. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I didn't think so. <laughs> uh, but you want to know what do I do in that case? What, yes. What well, first, you've I, got yes, you've got two options. The first one is you don't let it get that far. You become mindful enough of your feelings so that you recognize the downhill movement of the feeling, which is heavy, unpleasant, foggy, uh, any one of these or all of them, where the feeling is sort of it's becoming like that. And then the mind looks for the reason for the feeling and says, everything is up. You see? So, But when you don't allow that to happen, when you stop at the feeling and say, hey, what kind of feeling is this? I'm going to think of something beautiful. <laughs> Sorry? Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The teaching, the practice, the um, the uh, uh, absolute assurance of the Buddha that if one practices, one is going to get out of all dukkha. Any kind of good meditation state you've ever had. Anything nice you've ever done. But in this, uh, according to what I've just read, Buddha Dhamma Sangha was own virtues, those four things. Before you allow the mind to say, well, it's because this guy is like this or this person is like that and because the weather is like this and because the food is like that. Before you allow any of that to happen. Just the feeling. Does Buddha Dhamma Sangha bring it back? Because most people who have any interest in practice, and I'm sure you must have experienced that, when they actually hear the Dhamma, the mind lives. Right? So you can't always have somebody talking about the Dhamma. I mean, uh, you just have to tag along behind me, and I'm not always talking about the Dhamma either, you know. <laughs> I mean, most of the time, but not always. So you've got to do it yourself. Bring Buddha Dhamma Sangha to mind. But whichever one of the three is the strongest for you. 
or anything you remember about it. The, the definite promise that there is a way out and that it is possible. And your own virtue. And don't say I haven't got any. <laughs> Everybody has. <laughs> and you know them. Right? That's the thing to do. But when the mind, now, now, when the mind has already said, oh, it's, because this is all like this and this is like that and I haven't got anything nice to look forward to and all the rest of it. When the mind already is talking like that, then you have to do much sterner measures. Then you have to tell your mind to be quiet and stop all this nonsense and uh, then you have to tell it something that is very, very um, uh, wonderful, anything that you might tell it that might, you might have to open a book and read, uh, read something from the Buddha or from the teaching, or anything that's inspiring, even an inspiring verse, anything like that, might uh, open up something and look at it and say, oh, that's right. And I like that thing I hung on that outside door there, on the outside. That's exactly right for that kind of occasion. You may take it with you when you leave. Oh, it's not interesting going out sometimes. I don't feel good when it's in suffering at all. The ego is very dispensed. Do you like to feel good in suffering? No. No. If you don't know any better, you might feel good, but I mean, we know better, don't we? No, I've never, never thought that suffering felt good. Because it has so much suffering. Sure. Yeah, but that's the kind of thing where people come around and tell you all their problems. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, um, that's the other way around. I mean, that's the wrong way to go. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. But they might not be actually suffering. They m- they might enjoy that worry. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They enjoy the worry. That's what you mean. They're not they're not really suffering. They're enjoying the worrying. But you you don't like that. What when you do? Yeah, right. So you can do something about it. <laughs> yes. So this is what is said. Those four limbs, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, and your own virtues and pick out from the what you like. You can use the Dhamma teaching. Anything that you remember from it, the promise. And then if you've already got too far with this, then you take something inspiring and read it, or, or if you know it by heart, recite it. Quite nice to recite the Karaniya Metta Sutta. I sometimes chant that. Okay, anything else? Now here's a little um, sutta which is called the seven and the fourteen. Or the seven, sorry, the seven are fourteen. And what is a method of explanation according to which the seven factors of enlightenment are actually fourteen? Sounds good, doesn't it? Mindfulness as to one's own personal conditions 
That is the factor of enlightenment that is mindfulness. Mindfulness as to external conditions, that's also the factor of enlightenment which is mindfulness. So in speaking of the factor of wisdom which is mindfulness, the factor of enlightenment which is mindfulness, that is what is meant. So by this method it is twofold. So mindfulness should go to oneself and also to external conditions. Now external conditions mean that we can see impermanence in dukkha externally uh, just as much as internally. And it will help us to see dukkha far more objectively and as a universal condition which means that we don't have a monopoly on it, that we don't own it, it's not ours, it just is. And that is uh, very helpful. Now, the next uh, factor of enlightenment is the investigation into Dhamma. Search for the research, investigation into Dhamma, into phenomena. In the sense of searching, investigating, scrutinizing for insight into one's own personal conditions. And it is the same as regards external. So when we speak of the fact of enlightenment that is the investigation into Dhammas, that is what is meant. It is twofold. Now Dhammas, in this case, Anicca Dukkanatta, impermanence, Dukkha, substancelessness, qualitness, in oneself and in the world around. If we see it, now we sometimes people do that, they see it in things around them but they don't go far enough to see it in themselves. If we see it in ourselves, it is highly unlikely that we wouldn't see it in everything around us. But it is important to recognize that everything has the same condition. Everything's impermanent. Everything has, because of that impermanence, no complete satisfaction embedded in it, has no fulfillment in it because it's all changing. We can't grasp something and grab it and say, this is it, I'm going to hang on to it. And because of that, we can't find any substance in it. Now, if we see that around us, we've got to put it with inside of ourselves. This is probably the most important step in insight. There's hardly anything that could be considered more important. Then, if we... If we can see that everything out there is changing, well, obviously it's not very hard, then we have to see it in here, that everything is changing. And the moment we see that everything is changing, we will also know we will know that because in here it is changing, that there's no real solution. Now, maybe out there, all these changes don't bother us at all. Why should they? Why should it bother us that the tree is dying or that the uh, rain is followed by sun? On the contrary, we like it. It's good. It's far more interesting, isn't it? Otherwise, it's a bit boring. If everything remained the same, it would be very boring. But what about the substance in the person called me? That has to be seen. That is what... It's only then that it becomes a factor of enlightenment 
when the inner condition is actually understood completely. The inner condition which is so understood that there's no question left that the me, the self, is an illusion which can not be sustained through experience. Only then has it become a fact of enlightenment. Because at the moment when we're not enlightened, this illusion is being sustained by our thought process, this is me. It's quite simple, isn't it? I mean, who else? Not you, so it must be me. But as soon as we have really seen it, then that illusion is no longer sustainable. There's nothing there. There is nobody at all. And then, of course, it's a fact of enlightenment. So the inner understanding is very much helped by the outer. But if we only do it out there, it doesn't work then it's more like a movie which we enjoy because the movie is constantly changing. The pictures are constantly changing. So that's very nice out there. It's all constantly changing. Looks okay. You know, and especially some people, they don't like to be in a country where there aren't four seasons, for instance. It's boring. Quite so. So it's much nicer. Sometimes you have sunshine, sometimes snow, sometimes there's rain. It's all very interesting. And all these people look all different and they get older and everything is fine. In fact, there are, our scientists are quite sure of this, that there isn't a single solid building left in the whole of the universe. They know all that. I mean, but none of them are enlightened because they don't know it about this. They know it about that. So what's out there, if we keep ourselves separate from it, as the wise and clever observer of it all, then we are only supporting the uh, ego illusion more than before. Because we are so clever and know all this. That which is bodily energy is energy as a factor of enlightenment. That which is mental energy is also energy as a factor of enlightenment. So then we speak of the factor of enlightenment which is energy, that's what's meant. It is this method which is twofold, bodily and mental energy. Now it is said quite rightly here, well, it's not very clear, but anyway, that the mental energy does um, help the body energy. The mental energy makes the body energy happen, uh, which is of obvious, of course, because our body is really dependent upon what we think. Now, today I had some Burmese visitors who told me that one of the ladies' mother died uh, just recently. She was 67. And uh, I said, was she very ill? And uh, she said, no, not at all. She had no will to live. She was constantly at the doctors and no, nothing could ever be found. So it's her mind which made her ill enough to die, which is not uncommon. And But this is, of course, a very, very uh, um, strong state there. 
It's our mind which really produces our, uh, our body's energy and our body's ca- capacity and abilities. Naturally, there are limits. I mean, the Buddha also died. There are limits to these things. But the energy of mind and body are essential for this practice. It cannot be practiced by someone who's lacking in energy. Because the, uh, the, if there's no energy, there will be a, it will be half-hearted practice. Now, and then there is piti, um, rapture, that is accompanied by initial and sustained application, which is also a factor of enlightenment, and piti unaccompanied by initial and sustained application, that is also a factor of enlightenment. So when we speak of the factor of enlightenment, that is piti, that is rapture, that is what is meant. It can be accompanied by initial and sustained application, but it can also be unaccompanied. Now that's very interesting, actually. It's the only time this is mentioned like this. Because PT accompanied by sustained, uh, by apply, um, initial and sustained application is of course the first jhana. So put one's mind on the meditation subject and then have to stay with it. And then this rapture arises. But it is possible to have rapture arise without that, without meditation subject, completely without it. So that's why it's a twofold thing. Not the the rapture which arises as a very pleasant feeling in the body can arise out of um, first of all in a practitioner who is so practiced that can do it at any time without even trying, but also one can get that kind of feeling by um, if one likes nature very much, to be in a very beautiful place and rapture can arise, or um, uh, through a sense contact, it can arise also. So um, it is, both of them are factors of enlightenment if one recognizes them for what they are, that they are not um, thought processes that they are uh, touching upon the inner purity and they can be in a, as a meditative factor and when one has to try to get there but it can also be that one just experiences it without anything that has to do with meditation and as I said one way is for the practitioner is perfectly capable to do that at any time without meditating and the other is through some very beautiful sense contact. The next factor of enlightenment is the tranquility and that can be tranquility of the body which is a factor of enlightenment and tranquility of mind also a factor of enlightenment. So when we speak of tranquility as a factor of enlightenment, this is what is meant. By this, the method is twofold. Now, tranquility is obviously the um, the second jhana, but the tranquility of mind, but here we also have tranquility of body, 
which is induced by equanimity. When a person has a great deal of equanimity, the body becomes very tranquil. And the tranquility in the body is not sloth and torpor, but it is a lack of excitement. And so the tranquility here is being divided into mind and body naturally induced by mind. The mind which has equanimity or the mind which has gone into the second jhana. So actually the Buddha is dividing it up into the states which are meditative and inside states and also the states which arise because the mind has already gained a certain ability to stay on an even keel. And both have to be practiced. Concentration accompanied by initial and sustained application is a factor of enlightenment and concentration unaccompanied is also a factor of enlightenment. So when we speak of the factor of enlightenment that is concentration, that is what is meant. So by this the method is twofold. Well, concentration usually the fourth jhana as I said in the factors of enlightenment it's not quite clear whether the second one is left out or whether the third one is left out the tranquility actually is a factor of the third one so when we look at the um, concentration we come to the fourth one and having been accompanied by initial and sustained application is definitely the jhana factor but when it's unaccompanied concentration can be extremely strong even for a practitioner when there hasn't been the endeavor to meditate it can just happen that a person who is very practiced becomes so strongly concentrated that insight arises without having gone through the jhana because the concentration is already established in the mind and the last one is equanimity as to one's own personal condition that is equanimity as a factor of enlightenment equanimity as to external conditions that is a factor of enlightenment so when we speak of the factors of enlightenment that is equanimity that's what's meant by this the method is twofold so from this we can see quite clearly that equanimity here is a state of mind and not one of the jhanas the first three are the jhanas and which are the rapture, tranquility and concentration and because concentration is usually meant to be the fourth one, tranquility usually the third one, we can say that the rapture one encompasses one and two. The wonderful sensation or the delightful sensation and the joy. And here equanimity is a state of mind. And the state of mind is towards one's own personal condition. Now also to external conditions. It's obviously much more difficult to be totally equanimous towards one's personal conditions as long as one thinks that there is a person that has conditions. So as it becomes a factor of enlightenment, it is no longer so difficult because external, internal, all melt into one and what is out there is in here and what's in here is out there. And the equanimity is the even-mindedness, which means what we have already had before, which is very important to remember, that whether ugly or beautiful, 
there is no reaction to it. It just is. It all is. We can see it's ugly, we can see it's beautiful, but we don't have to reject the one nor have to get the other. And when these feelings are no longer reacted to in that manner, then there is total equanimity and then it is a factor of enlightenment. It's only a factor of enlightenment when it's total. It is not a factor of enlightenment, of course, when we're practicing it, but what is there to do? We have to practice it before it becomes total. So as we can become aware of our feelings and then see that there is the beginning of reaction, we can look at that feeling and see it's already gone. The minute there is the beginning of reaction, the feeling is gone because reaction has set in. And when we see that, we don't need to react anymore because the feeling is gone anyway. It's very interesting. It's only possible for a meditator to practice like that. Nobody else has sufficient mindfulness for that. But it is one of the most important things to do when we feel that our equanimity could stand some improvement. First is the feeling, then comes the reaction. And the moment the reaction to the feeling comes, the feeling is gone. So when we watch the reaction, we see it's totally unnecessary. Feelings are already long gone. It's a wonderful release and release. Nothing better. Because it's so quick, the whole thing, nothing to be done. That's the end of this. Uh, uh, Sutta says, so this is the method of explanation according to which the seven factors of enlightenment are 14. And I think this is quite interesting that the seven factors of enlightenment have now become 14. So, any questions on any of that? <laughs> Twice a week. <laughs> but it, it is not really, because it is really a more analytical explanation, more detailed, which helps one to see, you know, what one has to do. Anything that needs to be questioned. Or quite clear, huh? Yeah. It's also useful. Very useful. I can German. It's only in German. That was brought out in Switzerland. It's only in German. But the heart of Buddhist meditation was originally English. And then only after in German. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, if you have to go, it's 9.30. Yeah, it's true. I think you want to read the sutras, what would you read the other thing? Huh? Well, I said, if you want to read the sutras, what would you read the other What would you read? Yes. If you want to read the suttas? Yes. You mean which suttas? Yes. For beginners. <laughs> The suttas are not for beginners. <laughs> they are all, all the suttas are suttas. There is no sutta for beginners. They is there a book at the uh, Many books. Many, many books. Um, I don't know. You'd ha- I think the only way you can get the suttas would be from the Buddhist Publication Society. 
uh, the Polytech Society extremely expensive, much too expensive, and uh, otherwise I don't know that the sutras would be available. There is one by wisdom, the Diganikaya, and that's the one I wouldn't read because it's uh, this particular sutta is in the Diganikaya, but the rest of the Diganikaya is not that um, much for practice. So I, I, the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy, you can get the book list from them. And from that book list you can see probably quite easily which are the suttas. And if you can't see it, then then, say, then write to them and ask them which are the suttas. And they're inexpensive. I mean, comparative to any other books that you can buy in the West. You know? Bye-bye. So, anything else? Um, I have a question. You said when you were talking about the two which came about when you were advancing your practice, that from fear. That can arise, yes, yes, yes. yes. Sometimes people, that's when you need a teacher, and sometimes people then find out that they thought they had a teacher, but really don't have one. Did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Go to the top of the class. <laughs> That's right. They might they might have a teacher, but they don't go and, and ask them and don't take advantage because they don't have the the trust, the confidence, and the devotion. The people's people's biggest mistake that they make in this kind of thing is well, not the biggest. One of the mistakes, right? One of the mistakes people make is instead of sitting there and practicing, they are um, criticizing the teacher. You know and why the people do that? Because it gets them out of practicing. You know? Then they don't have to practice because the teacher doesn't know I mean, why should I practice? And the teacher does this and the teacher does that, so why should I practice? Criticizing the teacher is one of I mean it's a popular pastime because it's very easy because it's one and there are a lot of other people there, so there is one person to criticize very easy. And um then it gives a justification for not practicing. So when you come, when you have actually practiced to the point where the fear comes, and you've done that, you're not going to go to the teacher and take your thesis or your word for it. You know, then this thing, oh, yeah, well, no good. The whole thing is no good. Teacher's no good, practice's no good, everything's no good, I'll go home. You know? So that happens more frequently than not. And that, that whole, uh, that is one of the pitfalls. As I was saying earlier, you know, that we can at all go that pathway, but there are so many things that would come in the way, and that's one of them. Could it be that one trusts the teacher up to that point and then mm-hmm. falls by the wayside? Yes, also happens. But that's the time when you have to talk to the teacher. If you do, everything goes fine. And if you don't, then the mind says, such rubbish. Who wants this? I've got enough to come. I'm not going to get any more. You know, that, yes, of course. The teacher can at that time, you can, and particularly so if there hasn't been that full acceptance and devotion to just the way it is. 
But there's always been that niggling thing, or oh, there must be somebody better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, of course, the whole thing breaks down. But that is the point where, where it easily happens. And then, very unfortunate. And then also another thing happens, not only that you stop practicing, that also happens, of course, but another thing is that you may con- think you're continuing to practice and going totally the wrong way. Now, we ha- I ha- also have an experience with somebody like that. Comes to that point, quite strong, no confidence, no devotion, no respect, no gratitude, so no dis- um, help from the teacher's side, and wants to continue to practice, but does it on a, on a level which will never amount to anything, the wrong way. One can practice the wrong way. One can do anything the wrong way. I mean, even practicing. So, uh, that is a time when one really has to sort of go maybe against one's instincts to overcome that. So, anything else? Yes. Sure, it's a very human thing, but through the practice one one is able to recognize that. And this is one of the stumbling blocks. And this is why people go from this one to that one to the next one and nothing happens. You know, nothing, absolutely nothing. And then they find something which is an emotional outlet and they think, huh, now I've got it. But all of this is an emotional outlet, you know. So um, if one sees in oneself that Every one of us has this tendency to criticize, just as you say. And if we see that, then, of course, we are able to stop it. But if we don't see it, if we believe it, then we won't stop it. Because then we are quite happy to continue with that, you know, criticism. And this is another thing also, uh, you were mentioning, you know, like examples which are not um, inspiring I mean, you know, people who've been practicing and then nothing happens and that type of thing. But again, that's looking outside. I mean, the Buddha's own cousin, who was a monk, as long as the Buddha, or almost as long, Devadatta, tried to kill the Buddha, to get a hold of the Sangha, to be the head of the Sangha, Three times he tried to kill him. I mean, the monk and uh, his own cousin practicing day in and day out under the Buddha. So, does that make the Buddha teaching wrong? Or does it? Surely not. Devadatta is the name. One should remember that. 
Of course there are. That, that's quite true. Um, but on the other hand, certainly there are teachers that are not trustworthy because they do stupid things. But, but, but and this is the interesting part, and now I think one can say it because a man is dead. Shogyam Trungpa was a person, a lama, uh, not a monk, a lama, um, who did very crazy things. And yet, he taught people wonderfully well. One of my best friends is a nun who was trained by him. And she knew all the crazy things he was doing. And she loved him dearly because everything she knows he taught her. And she knows, and she runs a, a monastery. She's the head of a monastery. And she knows a lot. And she has practiced well. And yet, I mean, if you say he was, that person wasn't trustworthy. I only know what I read in the newspapers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Yes, but then they don't teach you anything, so then of course you have to go away. But this man's behavior was not exemplary, and it was not a model. It was, uh, I mean, I only know what I've read in the newspapers. I have never met him. <laughs> but I, I mean, it was all over the newspapers in America. Anybody could read it, you know. So, um, and yet, he taught wonderfully well, and his books are excellent. I've read his books, and not all, but what I've read is wonderful. Really true. And, um, and my friend, Pema, you know, she has learned, she's very good. You know, she has learned a lot. And so, to criticize that man would have been so simple. I mean, everybody did it anyway. <laughs> I mean, it was very easy to criticize him because he did all the wrong things. And uh, as far as, you know, that goes, that's what, what one expects, you know, people to do. And yet, he helped many people. So, this is an extreme case, a very extreme case. And he had a lot of compassionate themes, that was I was told, and was very, very kind and very um, intuitive with people, you know. And yet in his personal life, well, none of us would want to live like that, you know, the way his personal life went. And uh, that's not slandering him. First of all, he's dead and saying he was in all the newspapers, so it's nothing, you know, that, no, that is not known. Um, and yet all the people who were taught by him have the greatest love for him. So this is, uh, I think, maybe an example uh, that our judgmental mind is a hindrance. And especially now in that case, maybe, well, even there it's not justified. But if it's even less than that, I mean, it's totally unjustifiable because our own pathway is blocked. That's, that's the problem. The pathway, our own pathway is blocked because the judgmental mind always stands in the way. The more judgments, judgments we make, the less we can go. The judgments are the blockages. If we just let it happen, just flow with it, the mind will go there eventually, if it's enough quiet. So if we see ourselves as, uh, with all these judgments in the mind, we realize it's, I mean, everybody's got them. It's not blameworthy. It's human. 
but we can change it. Yeah. And this comes because he had a bad karma or because he had not a, a high realization? How do I know? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would say it to Kim because he didn't have any self-discipline. <laughs> that would make it more sensible, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, I mean, I have no idea whether he was a stream enterer. I didn't say that. The Buddha said that. I have no idea whether he was a stream enterer. I never met the man. I have no idea. I've read his books. But I know that enormous criticism was leveled at him uh, from all sides for his, uh, well, not exemplary behavior in his own personal life, which was always concerning his own personal life. And... um, Yet he, his books were excellent and his teaching was very good. Apparently, well, the books came out of his teaching, so it must have been a very good teaching because the books were. And easily understandable, he didn't beat around the bush. It was straightforward. Yeah. Uh, meditation and action is one, and uh, spiritual materialism, huh? Cutting. Cutting through spiritual materialism, yes. Very good. Excellent. And then the others I haven't read. The, that's the warrior. Yes, I haven't read that. But uh, so that's uh, that's an example where the critical, judgmental mind uh, should uh, definitely uh, not be used. And so we can see that in lesser cases, um, the criticism and the judgment is a blockage. Yes. Certainly, but you do, of course, um, but you wouldn't want, to, you don't have to be judgmental and say, well, he's bad because he's doing that. You just say, well, this is the kind of thing I don't want to do because I don't think it's going to help me in any way. And then leave it entirely open to doubt what he's doing, why he's doing it, and all the rest of it because that's his business. Let him be, you know. So naturally, you make up your mind for yourself, but you don't condemn the person. You know. But it's not so easy to uh, have confidence, complete confidence, then in this person. It's he does not follow his own teaching. Yes, it was, of course it's difficult, naturally. So it's an extreme example. It's very extreme. I think his example is extremely extreme. It's a very, really way out because it's such good teaching and such strange behavior. So, it's a, the example is extreme. But it's a, a, also the thing is that the teaching of the Dhamma is not... So, we, we don't have so much access to it. So, when, when we have the opportunity, Maybe it is always, one should always look at the Dhamma more. Like in his case would have been, you know, just to look at the Dhamma he was teaching and forget about what else he's doing. If 
nobody got hurt. When somebody gets hurt, that's a different story then, because then you are in danger also of being hurt. And that is what you were having in mind, I think, huh? The not trustworthy where you could get hurt. Well, then you have to get out of the way. You have to protect yourself. And, of course, another thing that one has to protect oneself against, which is also an interesting fact, and the Buddha did say that, and it's a nice uh, discourse where he says, one has to protect oneself from situations where one is falling into danger. Now, the danger is physical, but also the danger of negativity, which arises. So he gives examples examples where to where, where to protect oneself and the examples don't apply to us but we have to we can use them one should get out of the way of wild elephants because that's very dangerous one should get not entangled in the in the jungle thicket one should get out of the way of bad men bad people um, robbers and such people uh, so which is physically dangerous in the first place, but it is also mentally dangerous because immediately, of course, not only fear but rejection arises. So if one knows that in a certain situation the rejection arises again and again, one can't feel at ease, well then one should get out of the way. So one doesn't have to, um, you know, stand every situation. And that's that I think is a very important thing also to know that one tries one's best up to 5-5 five, five, one can do it so you see your prophecy was quite wrong you prophesied that nobody was going to have any questions <laughs> <laughs> false prophets <laughs> any other questions Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let all the thoughts, all the ideas, all the likes and the dislikes, all the hopes and the plans, all the memories, let it all float away. Like clouds in the sky being dispersed by the wind, so that there is then a cloudless sky, a cloudless heart and mind. Spacious, without any obstructions, 
purity in it. Touch your heart. Substance and recognize that it is nothing but love. That is the heart substance, unencumbered by thoughts and ideas. Touch it. Come aware of it. Everybody has it. It's love, warmth, surrender. Let these feelings permeate you, surround you. And now let this warmth and love which is your heart substance reach out to the person nearest you. Let it reach that person's heart. Now, let it reach out to everybody here. The warmth and the love, which are the natural qualities of the heart, when the heart is unencumbered. Let it reach out to everyone here. Fill everyone with warmth and love. Now let it reach out to those people that are closest to you. Give them the whole of your heart. Totally flowing, totally surrendering.
Now reach out to all your friends. Let them have the whole of your heart with all its love and warmth. Now reach out to the people who are part of your life, whether you know them well or not. Neighbors, colleagues, fellow travelers. Fill them with the love and warmth from your heart, giving them all that your heart contains. Think of anyone with whom you have difficulties. Whom you find difficult to love or towards whom you are quite indifferent. Let that heart quality and substance reach out to that person too. Filling him or her with your love, your compassion, all that your heart contains. Open your heart as wide as you can. Let its quality of love flow out of it. Reaching out to the people that are near, around here, 
and then further away. There's nothing else in one's heart except love. Let it go to paper as far as the strength of your love will carry. Now put your attention back on yourself. Now recognize the power of love to give peace, harmony.